Scripture reading this morning is going to be Acts 22, verse 30, uh, down through verse 11 of chapter 23. So we're going to read right through the chapter break again like we did last time. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read the first verse and ask that you join with me on the second, and we'll continue every other verse. Acts 22, beginning with verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Our Father and our God, we ask now that your blessing would be added to the reading of your word. Uh, We thank you for the resurrection that we celebrate this day, uh, the day in which Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Pray that each one of us would uh, have our eyes open to the significance of that event, uh, how it really is the core of our faith, uh, the central message of the gospel. Pray that you would remind us of the power of the resurrection and the hope that it provides for each one of us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts, and we're following along the account of the Apostle Paul uh, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Just as God had warned Paul as he was headed to Jerusalem, he has been attacked uh, by the Jews at the temple. And because of the disruption that the mob was creating as they were all rushing at Paul and even beating him, trying to kill him right there, Uh, The Roman official, known as the Tribune, comes in with hundreds of soldiers. They break up uh, the commotion. And the Tribune is sort of like the general of the Roman army here. He was in charge of maintaining order 
in the city of Jerusalem. In today's day and age, we might think of like the city sheriff or something like that. Uh, he had the responsibility to ma- maintain order uh, and make sure that things were running smoothly in the city. And he's just trying to do his job. As you read this account, you might be tempted to think that he's an enemy of Paul. Not really. Uh, he's just trying to maintain order and figure out what in the world uh, is going on. The Jews were pummeling this guy Paul in the temple, and so this Roman officer assumes that Paul must have done something wrong. Uh, He must have violated one of the Jewish laws, and that's why they're uh, treating him this way. And he's tried several different ways to get the answer as to what Paul has done. We've seen this over the last several weeks. At first, the Tribune tried to just ask the angry crowd of people, who is this guy? Why are you beating him up? You know, what did he do? And like most mobs, uh, most of the people there didn't really even know uh, what they were supposed to be outraged about. And so he couldn't get an answer from them. So then Paul asked to speak to the crowd, and the Roman Tribune allows him to. And he's probably thinking, well, I'll finally figure out what this is all about. Paul will give his speech, and I'll be able to figure out what the controversy is. But then as Paul begins to speak to the crowd, he speaks in Aramaic, uh, which the Roman official couldn't understand. And so he's standing there, and it just sounds like gibberish to him. Uh, And so once again, uh, he he can't figure out what, what this is all about. Then he orders his soldiers to flog Paul. Uh, He figures they can whip Paul, uh, beat him until he speaks and confesses to his crime. But then, as we saw last week, Paul brings up the fact that he was a Roman citizen, and so it was illegal uh, for them to flog him. And so this brings us to today's text. Uh, The Roman Tribune is still trying to figure out what crime Paul had committed. Uh, So he brings Paul before the court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. And he's hoping that he'll be able to figure out what are the charges against Paul. Uh, Why is he standing trial here? What is it that he's done wrong? So he brings him before the Jewish leadership, as verse 30 of chapter 22 says. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now this trial takes place in the next chapter in Acts 23. And this is the fifth time that the Sanhedrin has had to encounter the claims of Jesus and render a judgment. The first time was when Jesus himself stood before this crowd uh, 25 years plus earlier. Then in chapter 7, Stephen was brought before them. And his bold speech before the Sanhedrin led to them executing him as the first martyr of the Christian church. Uh, Back in in chapter 4, Peter and John had been called before the Sanhedrin, and then in chapter 5, all 12 apostles were brought before them. And so now, here we are, years later, roughly 20 years after those early events in Acts, uh, Paul is standing before this very group. He was once one of them. He was a member of this court. He was involved in Stephen's execution. But today, he stands before them a changed man. He is now a follower of Jesus himself. And so for the fifth time, the Sanhedrin uh, will hear about Jesus, this time from the mouth of Paul. And once more, they reject his testimony. And each time that they have rejected Christ and the truth of the gospel, they are heaping on themselves more and more judgment as they continually reject the truth and persecute Christ and his church. And so this sets up the text, Paul before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the leaders of Jerusalem, We pick it up in verse 1. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, 
Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now you notice the way that Paul addresses them. Brothers, that may seem respectful enough, but it really isn't. Uh, When Paul was addressing the crowd in Jerusalem at the temple, the common people, he referred to them as his brothers and fathers. But here he's standing before the council. The Sanhedrin, the most exalted men in Jerusalem. And he refers to them as brothers. He addresses them, in other words, as his equals. It would be like if we were to stand before the Supreme Court or the King of England or the President of the United States, some very high-ranking official uh, that you're normally going to address with words like your majesty or your honor or something. And Paul, instead, walks right into the council, looks them dead in the eyes and says, fellas, and then he just goes on with his speech. He just sort of addresses them as equals. And he starts off by saying that he's innocent, that in his heart before the Lord, he's done nothing wrong. His conscience is clear. And that alone was enough to set off the high priest. Verse 2 says, the high priest Annas commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Uh, Don't confuse, by the way, this Ananias with other Ananiases in the Bible. That's a common name. This is not Sapphira's husband. Uh, This is also not the Ananias who baptized Paul. Uh, This also, don't confuse him with Annas, who was the high priest when Jesus stood trial before this council. This is a different Ananias. This is the high priest, and he hears Paul's opening statement about his clear conscience before God, and maybe it was that fact that upset him. Maybe it was the way that he addressed the Sanhedrin. But either way, he is furious, and so he orders Paul to be struck across the face. And at this point, Paul kind of loses his cool for a minute. Verse 3, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? He is ticked off, Uh, and understandably so. Paul's been beaten up quite a bit at this point. He's probably just sick of being punched. Uh, But this response was wrong, and he acknowledges it in the verses that follow that, yeah, I I shouldn't have said that. Uh, This was the old Paul uh, coming out. Saul. God had transformed Paul from the angry, angry and violent man that he was in his younger years, and now he stands before them a tender-hearted, loving follower of Christ. We saw his compassion, his graciousness in the text from last week, where he kindly and respectfully told the crowd his testimony of seeing the risen Jesus. But here we get a glimpse of the old nature that's still there in Paul. He was still a sinner. And for a brief moment, that old anger bubbled up inside of him and poured out. And we'll give him some grace. He's had a hard couple of days here, uh, getting beat up and imprisoned for nothing. Uh, Verse 4, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he acknowledges that, yes, I, I shouldn't have responded that way to the high priest. And now Paul does something rather clever in the verses that follow. He realizes at this point the court is obviously hostile to his testimony. They're not interested in hearing what he has to say. Uh, He's got one sentence out, and before he can even explain himself further, uh, the high priest orders him to be struck on the face. And so he knows they're just looking to pin charges on him. Uh, They're not looking to give him a fair trial. And so Paul gets right to the heart of the issue, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is a witness 
to the resurrection. He has seen Jesus alive from the dead. And so the man that this court has condemned and handed over to the Romans for crucifixion years prior, Paul can say, I've seen him alive. So the resurrection really is the cornerstone of of Paul's gospel message. It was all built on the fact that he had seen Jesus, who had died, risen back to life. This is what transformed the Apostle Paul's life. You remember in his early years, he persecuted the church. He did not believe in Christ as Messiah, and in fact, he attacked those who did. Uh, But what is it? What is the event that that changed Saul, his, his mind? What is it that caused him to become a Christian? It was the resurrection. Because he had seen Christ alive, he could not deny the fact that something miraculous had taken place. And if Jesus was risen from the dead, it validates everything that he said about who he was, everything about his message, about the kingdom of God. It was proven to be true in power by the resurrection. And so Paul cuts to the chase. He gets right to the resurrection in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, speaking of the council that he's standing before, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, in order to understand what Paul is doing here, you need to know some things about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, these two groups were opposites in many ways. We sometimes tend to think of Pharisees, Sadducees, ah, same thing. Uh, that's because the New Testament tends to group them together because they both hated Christ. Uh, they hated Christianity. But really, the two groups were opposites in many ways. Sort of like today, we have Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and the two sides pretty much disagree on everything. That's sort of how it was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this court was made up of half Pharisees, half Sadducees, uh, sort of like how Congress right now is split pretty much 50-50. And so that uh, br- brings uh, contention to the surface, shall we say. And so Paul brings up an issue that he knows is going to cause controversy among the leaders here, the resurrection. So instead of them all focusing on Paul, they're going to start fighting with each other. Uh, and so this is why he kind of brings this up and cuts right to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, The Pharisees were the conservatives. They believed in strict observance of the Old Testament laws. In fact, they added many laws on top of the 611 commands of the Old Testament. They were the fundamentalists. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the theological liberals. Uh, They basically didn't believe in anything supernatural. Uh, They rejected much of the Old Testament. They really only held to the Pentateuch. Uh, They did not believe in demons or angels. They didn't believe in afterlife, no sort of resurrection. The Sadducees believed that once you died, that was the end of it. And as we've said before, that's why they were so sad, you see. So uh, Paul brings up the resurrection of Jesus, and in doing so, he is dividing the room in half. He's taking the side of the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. And this enraged the Sadducees who thought that all of that was nonsense. And so they start yelling at each other. The only thing I could think of uh, in today's day and age that would be this controversial is Donald Trump. I mean, you imagine going into a large room with a bunch of people and you say something about Trump, positive or negative, doesn't really matter. Uh, Instantly, you're going to divide the room. and You're going to have some people yelling one thing and the other people yelling at each other. And uh, that's sort of what Paul is doing here. He's dividing the council among themselves. 
And so there's this strong reaction as the Pharisees and disagree, uh, I'm sorry, as the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, disagreed on the subject of the resurrection. Verse 7. When he had said this, when he says that I'm standing trial because of the hope and, and belief in the resurrection, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So the Sadducees essentially believed only in the physical life, everything that we see around us. Pharisees believed that there were dimensions beyond uh, just humanity, that there were spirits, that there were angels, that there was an afterlife, that there were higher forms of beings than just us. And so they're split. The, the assembly is divided. Verse 9, there, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So at this point, the Pharisees are actually on board with Paul. Uh, after he's declared himself on their side and he says, uh, I've seen Jesus risen from the dead, uh, the Pharisees say, well, what's wrong with that? Maybe he did see someone. Maybe an angel appeared to him. Maybe Jesus' spirit came back in, in a vision or something and appeared to Paul. And this angered the Sadducees even more. Verse 10, when the dissension became violent, so now we're beyond words, now we're actually swinging fists, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so once again, the Roman soldiers have to go in and rescue Paul from an angry mob, uh, this time the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem. And once again, the Roman tribune still doesn't know what Paul had done wrong. Uh, he's been trying to get this answer of, of what this is all about, what the controversy is, why everyone is uh, so upset with Paul. And once again, he still doesn't really know. Now, I imagine at this point, this would be a very discouraging time for the Apostle Paul. Jesus had told Paul early in his ministry that he was going to testify for Christ and his gospel before kings and rulers, that he would stand and preach while on trial. And here at this point, he probably feels like he just blew it. He got angry, he popped off at the high priest, and nobody really wanted to listen to him. They all got so angry when he brought up the resurrection that they had to get him out of there for his own safety. And now, as he sits in his jail cell, I wonder if Paul was thinking that he missed out on a great opportunity, that he let the Lord down. His calling to stand before rulers and testify for Jesus seemed to have been lost. But then look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I think the Lord knew here at this moment that Paul needed a word of encouragement. And what a joy it must have been to Paul's heart to hear his Lord tell him, you've done well. You testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You, you stood before that crowd. You told them how you had seen me alive. You've done well, Paul. And then he tells Paul, in addition to that commendation of his work, that God wasn't finished with him. You're going to have other opportunities. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand before the very leadership of the Roman government, the empire, and you're going to testify of me. Paul had screwed up a little bit. He, had, he acknowledged that later, that he shouldn't have reacted in anger to the high priest. And yet, Jesus says he still did well. That should comfort us as we seek to share Christ with others, even as we do so imperfectly. 
God is still pleased with it. God is pleased if we are faithfully telling others about the resurrection of Christ. I think it's noteworthy also that Paul is praised for testifying to the facts about Christ in Jerusalem, despite the fact that nobody believed him. Nobody really listened to him. Uh, When he got done speaking to the crowds, as we saw last week, they started flinging dirt in the air, demanding that Paul be killed. And now as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, they're totally hostile to his message, and they begin fighting with one another. Nobody really responded well to Paul's preaching. No one was saved. The results didn't seem to be much of anything. And yet God was pleased. As we share the gospel with others, we are responsible for obedience, not results. As Paul said in his letters, we plant, we water, but it's up to God to grow the harvest. It's up to the Lord how he wants to use our testimony. It's up to the Lord how he wants to use our church. It's up to the Lord how he wants to use my sermons when I stand to preach. My job is to be faithful, to preach the word accurately as best as I know how. But then at the end of the day, it's up to the Lord what he chooses to do with that. And it's the same with you. As you witness to coworkers, family, neighbors, sometimes you might think, well, that failed. <laughs> they didn't really seem interested. Uh, nothing was accomplished. And yet, God is pleased. As we consider the trial of Paul on this Easter morning, we see very clearly two facts about the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. First of all, it's a divisive doctrine. Uh, it was then and it is now. And secondly, it is a fundamental doctrine. Uh, Paul was not lying when he said, this is, this is what my whole message is about, is the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Nothing is more central to our faith than our belief that Jesus rose again. It's at the core of what it means to be a Christian. You cannot be a follower of Jesus if he is still dead. Listen to how fundamental the belief in resurrection is from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1 where he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's about to remind them of the gospel. What follows in the next verse, this is the gospel. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what Paul is going to remind them of is the gospel message that he's given his life to preach, And it is this message that saves if we hold fast to it, if we cling to the belief in Jesus' resurrection. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can experience the new life in Christ. Verse 3, here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And I think most Christians understand why it was important for Jesus to come to earth to begin with, to take on human flesh and to live among us. And I think most Christians understand why it was essential that he would die on a cross, bearing our sins on himself. But I wonder if I were to ask you this morning, what's the big deal about the resurrection of Jesus? What would you say? I mean, why does it matter? If Jesus came and lived among us, laid down his life for our sins, wouldn't that have been sufficient? Jesus had become a man. He had lived a perfect, sinless life in order for his life of obedience to be imputed or credited to us. 
And then he had to die in order to bear in himself the punishment that we deserve. That's why it says there in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins. It wasn't just that he was a victim of injustice, although that's true. Jesus, as he died on the cross, took the sentence of death that we all deserved. And it was paid in full by Christ. And so you might be tempted to think, well, if Jesus lived a perfect life and he died in my place, then that's really all that needed to be done for my salvation. I could be saved, all my sins could be forgiven, he paid the penalty, everything would be great. And if you think that, listen to what Paul writes in verse 14 of this chapter. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says if Christ didn't really rise from the dead, you're not forgiven of your sins. Your faith is futile, it's empty, it's meaningless. Those loved ones that you have who have fallen asleep, those who have died before you, followers of Christ who have perished, Paul says they're dead, it's over if Christ is not raised. And if in Christ we have hope only in this life, if Christianity is only about being a better person, receiving blessings from God here and now in our life here, if that's all it's about, then Paul says it's meaningless. We're most to be pitied. What a miserable existence, Paul says. Christianity is a lie. The whole thing is a waste of time. We are still in our sins if Jesus did not rise again. We have no hope apart from the resurrection. And the reason that this is so important, as Paul goes on to explain in the next section of this chapter, is that the resurrection of Jesus is the grounds for our hope in resurrection. In other words, if Jesus didn't live eternally, if he doesn't live now, then you won't live eternally either. Jesus, as our representative, took on himself our sins, and he died in our place. And then he conquered death and rose to new life, so that those who trust in him and submit our lives to his service, one day we will follow in his footsteps through death and out the other side. As Paul explains in verse 20, For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So just like Adam's sin plunged all of us into sin, and we inherited a sin nature, in the same way, Paul says, the resurrection of Christ grants new life to those who belong to him. Uh, None of us would look at the event in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve partook of that fruit that, that was forbidden. None of us would read that account and think, oh, no big deal. (laughs) Of course it was a huge deal. It changed the whole trajectory of our universe. The fact that Adam sinned. And something just as seismic, something just as powerful happened when Jesus rose again from the dead. He changed the trajectory of our future. He gave humanity a second chance at eternal life with God. And he broke the power of sin and death. Verse 23, Paul goes on to say, 
But each in his order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He's saying Jesus has risen again, and so we have the hope, the guarantee of our future resurrection at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is another reason that the resurrection is so essential to our faith. Because Jesus didn't just rise again from the dead, ascend to heaven, and he's just sort of chilling up there uh, waiting to return. No, he's ruling. He's reigning. When he ascended from the grave, he ascended to rule over the world. And he is right now standing at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the church. And as Paul says, he must reign until every enemy is subdued. Until all the world is in submission to his authority. And then it says he will return and destroy death. The dead in Christ will be raised, never to die again. That's what it means to destroy death. That's speaking of the resurrection at the coming of Christ. And this is why we celebrate Easter each year. Because the resurrection of our Savior is what it's all about. That's what our faith, that's what the gospel is. The perfect Son of God who had died in our place, rising back to life, is momentous because by his resurrection and ascension, God the Father has elevated Christ as Lord of heaven and earth. He's given him all authority to rule. He is the king, conquering the powers of death and darkness in order to reclaim the lost world from the fall. And so the gospel then is an invitation to receive the salvation from sins that is offered because of the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus. And the gospel is also a command from our living king to repent of your sins and submit your life to his rule. And so the message that we proclaim to the world is one of freedom from sin and death through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's why Easter is worth celebrating.